Welcome. Welcome, listeners, to the sixth edition of Functionally Speaking, a podcast that's... Wait a second. Uh, what's the music? Where's my intro music? Miss Engineer. Miss Engineer, will you please uh, come in here and explain what's going on with my intro music? Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce my engineer, Harmony. Dad, stop calling me your engineer. I'm your daughter. Okay, whatever, fine. Uh, what's up with the music? Dad, it's Joshua Bell. He's a famous violinist. Oh, you got to be kidding me. According to the Washington Post, his music tells humans why they bother to live. Are you, are you serious? Classical music on my podcast? You're fired. Dad, you don't even pay me. Just go to your room. Oh, nice. What kind of behavior analyst uses negative punishment on a child? Just go put some heavy metal intro music on like I asked. Yeah. See, and why couldn't we have just started it off like this in the first place? Welcome, welcome listeners to the sixth edition of... Functionally speaking, a podcast more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. I'm DJ Moran, your host, and before we go any further, I'd like to present the Informed Consent Disclaimer. The material presented and opinions expressed on this website and these podcasts here on are simply those of the individual participants who do not represent the profession of psychology or represent expert advice. They do not speak for acceptance and commitment therapy or any other therapy in general. These materials are for entertainment purposes, for professionals interested in modern cognitive behavior therapy and behavioral analysis. This information is no substitute for reading primary sources and gaining supervised therapy experience from a professional. Listen at your own risk. Thank you, Steve Baker. Just a reminder that Functionally Speaking is the unsurpassed podcast in the behavior therapy community. And in Functionally Speaking 6, um, we're going to talk about uh, different kind of perspective on mindfulness as related to behavior therapy and acceptance commitment therapy, and talk a little bit about, uh, quite arguably, the first acceptance commitment therapy song. There are lots of interventions that folks learn as they become ACT therapists. The typical highlights are metaphors for acceptance, such as the baby tiger or the tug-of-war with a monster exercise. There are exercises for diffusion, like lemon, 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 lemon. And uh, there's also values clarification. Those are typically the marquee ACT interventions that people think about, especially when they're starting out their training. Another typical intervention move is to teach mindfulness to folks. There have been probably hundreds of mindfulness scripts posted all around the Internet. And I bet you can find some podcasts on mindfulness also if you search There's probably lots of really good recordings you can download to kind of get across to folks, your clients, the idea about mindfulness. I think helping folks become more mindful through these methods is a neat way to improve our clients' psychological flexibility. And I also think that it's helpful to put an alternate perspective on mindfulness for our clients and for ourselves as clinicians, too. Some folks would argue that doing things mindfully is an end in itself. Behaving mindfully is its own reward, some folks might say. It isn't necessarily a a means to anything. And I'd like to offer a quick, you know, a bit of a quick ACT and RFT analysis to why it can be clinically useful to have people learn mindfulness. Outside of that, it's just good to be mindful. 
If you can get a copy of the Inflexahex case conceptualization worksheet in front of you, incidentally, you can find it in the Act in Practice book in Appendix B, or you can download it for free from actinpractice.com. Um, so if you, if you can get, get one of those in and look at the Inflexahex case conceptualization model. You'll notice that this worksheet displays the psychological, psychopathological processes targeted by ACT. Um, so this worksheet, if you take a good look at it and you kind of go around the horn there, you'll notice that there's a, a six psychopathological processes that are targeted by acceptance and commitment therapy. This model is kind of like the inverted hexaflex that people typically look at. Um, it displays many of the clinical concerns that lead to psychological inflexibility on this inflexahex worksheet. So if you look at the North Pole of the model, you'll see where it says weak self-knowledge, dominating concept of the past and feared future. I suggest that these clinical concerns can be solidly addressed by mindfulness exercises and exercises that help folks with contacting the present moment. Here's why I think this. When one can fluently come into contact with the more salient direct contingencies, and I argue that this is a skill that can improve with proper practice, then those direct contingencies can occasion more value-directed choices. So what am I saying here? If you practice mindfulness, it's more likely that you're going to be able to um, contact direct contingencies, the things that are, are present for you, the reinforcers, the punishers, the SDs, that stuff is going to become more present to you if you practice um, mindfulness. Um, the relational frame theory literature often talks about something we call uh, deictic relations. And what deictic relations um, usually talk about is how we relate to ourselves as people, the I-you relations, and the here and there relations, and the now and then relations. And I don't want to kind of muddy up the podcast by starting to explain a lot of that stuff. But the idea that I'd like to kind of bring about right now is human beings have the ability to talk about and to be changed by conversations about here and now and changed by conversations and verbal stimuli about there and then. So the RFT literature talks about how these relations, the here and now relations and the there and then relations, can actually come to govern the way we behave. Through relational conditioning, people can learn to be governed by distal or indirect contingencies, contingencies that might have happened there and then or might happen in the future there and then, through this present verbal ability. Through this verbal learning, people can have their present moment governed by events that happened there and then more strongly than by the current here and now events. As a quick exercise, if you're willing, just check in with yourself right now. Are you having right now any feelings of embarrassment? I'd imagine not, but why not just pause this podcast and see if you can privately reflect on one of your most embarrassing moments. Again, only if you're willing to do this. See if you can recall what you did and how people responded to your actions. Really dig in. See the sights and the sounds of that particular memory. Don't let up on yourself until you feel something. And so if you're willing, go ahead, 
hit pause, and I'll wait. Welcome back. I need you to kind of understand that we've all been embarrassed and humiliated. Probably yours truly more than most. Um, Perhaps during that exercise you felt those feelings um, of embarrassment, of humiliation. Some folks might have actually even gotten red-faced and flushed. These are the physiological reactions of embarrassment. And they were occasioned by indirect conditioned stimuli that came through relations about something that happened there and then. Perhaps your face looked sheepish, or you glanced both ways to see if people were around, or maybe you just kind of hung your head just a little bit in shame. While you were having this reverie, these operants that are typically correlated with feelings of embarrassment were occasioned by your simple private reveries of a past moment. These are indirect contingencies. As I asked before the exercise, check in with yourself and see if you were feeling embarrassed. You likely weren't. There were no direct contingencies evoking or eliciting embarrassment reactions, unless, of course, listening to functionally speaking podcasts or something you feel ashamed of. So there were no direct contingencies. You didn't do anything outright embarrassing that would have evoked or elicited embarrassment reactions. But indirectly, you made present stuff that happened there and then. You made it here and now verbally. And because of transformation of stimulus functions or through transformation of stimulus functions, your behavior changed, your physiological reactions changed. After a few moments of using imagination, in other words, putting yourself in contact with certain indirect contingencies altered your responding. And what is happening is you've put yourself in a position to feel the effect of a dominating concept of the past. Okay, so you're at that North Pole piece right now. There's a dominating concept of the past during those brief moments that you had that reverie. And it led to a transformation of stimulus functions, which made you feel the emotions of embarrassment and maybe even had you do the small operant behaviors of, you know, hanging your head in shame or looking around and kind of feeling glum. The past, the things that happened then and there, are swaying your present. And isn't this what's happening with a lot of our clients? How a lot of clinically relevant behaviors can be based on things that have happened in the past or things that are brought from the past to the current. Um, Someone worrying over perhaps something that happened earlier in the day and they are being swayed more by something they might have done wrong earlier that day, earlier that week, earlier in their life, and they make it present in their now. Even though those contingencies aren't direct, they're exclusively verbal. They might be going through a day not having done anything wrong, but still being worried about things that they've done wrong, still being concerned about perhaps, let's say, they have an OCD repertoire and they're worrying about mm, somebody they might have uh, offended earlier in the day or somebody they might have injured because of some kind of transgression on a rule that they were supposed to follow. So see if it isn't somewhat useful to you as you conceptualize a case that sometimes folks are going to bring their then relations, things that happened there and then in their past, 
or potentially that might happen then in the future. And they bring it to bear on their current situation. In fact, what's happening is they're getting this dominating concept of past events, past relations that aren't useful. And for some folks with worry, maybe it's a dominating concept of a feared future. But either way, they've got this conceptualization about the past or the future that is impeding contacting present, direct, and perhaps important value-directed contingencies. That's where mindfulness comes in. Mindfulness practice competes with this highly um, frequent this high rate of uh, worry, um, this high rate of having um, relations about the past and the future. It competes with this dominating concept. Mindfulness practice is likely to influence a higher rate of noticing here and now relations. At least that's my argument. If you can reinforce the repertoire of becoming mindful, that is, noticing here and now, there's going to be an increased likelihood of that occurring. Hopefully, it generalizing and then being able to be selected in clinically relevant contexts. If coming into contact with present moment direct contingencies is practiced regularly so that it can become a more fluent response pattern, then I argue that coming into contact with the present moment will be a behavior selected more readily in the natural environment and importantly during clinically relevant uh, situations. If this happens, if mindfulness practice leads to the increased likelihood of mindful responses, then here now will be more salient than the clinically relevant there then, when the poop hits the fan. I like to tell a story that's been handed down to me by, you know, other ACT therapists. The story's been documented in the ACT and Practice book on uh, page 110, and I'd like you to imagine telling a story like this to a client um, who's being introduced to mindfulness. I think a lot of times when we introduce mindfulness to folks, um, it, it might be helpful for some of the folks at least uh, to get a sense of why it might be relevant to them. I believe it would be a useful adjunct, this story, to teaching people mindfulness skills in the therapy room. Story can be called, if you need a title, Dominated by the Past, Man versus Dog. Consider this. A man, whom we'll call Roger, arrives home in the late autumn as it is beginning to rain and realizes he's forgotten his house key. Both he and the family dog Fido are locked out and in the backyard. All of his mind's problem-solving doesn't work to help him come out of the rain. His neighbors aren't home, there's no garage for him to hide in, and the treehouse isn't providing much shelter from the cold rain. Besides, someone, he says to himself, will be home any minute. Fido and Roger get drenched waiting. Time passes, and at last, here comes the headlights, and the person with the keys to the house is behind the wheel of the car. After a few moments, the warm, dry house is open, and the aversive, cold, and rainy environment is outside. In effect, relationally, it's there. Fido shakes off the rain, goes to the kitchen to lap up some water from the bowl and crunch on some kibble, and then finally saunters over to his nice warm bed. He circles around the cushion three times before finally and contentedly lying down to rest, here and now. Roger, of course, does the same thing, right? Wrong. 
despite the cessation of the aversive stimuli, despite the fact that we've stopped him from having to get rained on in the you know, cold October, those events, those stimuli, the loneliness, the raininess, the cold, they are still verbally and psychologically present for him. Food, drink, and warmth could be easily attained. However, more than likely he will complain about how cold he was and how wet he was and how stupid he is for forgetting the keys and how angry he is at his wife for, of all things, being warm and dry. And now he's just too angry to relax, too upset to eat. When one is asked just to have these feelings, notice those thoughts, and then commit to important behaviors, value-based behaviors such as maintaining a good marital relationship. The person is not asked to do it someday, but to do it now. Think about how much different life would be for Roger if he were more in contact with the present moment of being in a warm, dry home with his loving wife than with those more negatively evaluated moments there and then in a past that's already gone. This story may speak to your answer to the following famous Zen koan, Does a dog have Buddha nature? While Roger's experience described um, may not be evidence of severe psychopathology, in fact, a lot of people might run into this kind of um, response pattern from time to time, um, his fusion with past content at the expense of experience the present is not functionally different from clinically relevant behavior, observed maybe in some of your treatment settings. Clinically relevant behavior typically diminishes psychologically fle psychological flexibility and it can corrupt valued living. If you avoid the contact with the present moment, well, then sometimes you're going to engage in behaviors that aren't so helpful towards your values. So reconsider Roger again, um, just coming in from the rain. And, and so his now has no direct aversive contingencies. But his verbal behavior, his complaining, his verbal relations of there and then about what has already passed brings to bear through transformation of stimulus functions, those aversive properties, even though it doesn't have to be, there's no direct contingencies that are aversive, he's warm and dry, but he can make them present by paying attention more to their then relations. It's already in the past, and what he evaluates as aversive becomes so very present to him that he's miserable even when warm and dry. I propose that building up a fluent mindfulness repertoire, having opportunities to become in better contact and more frequent contact with here and now relations will compete with these there-then relations and increase the likelihood that people will be able to make better choices and not be dominated by this kind of concept of the past and make choices that are value-directed and lead to greater psychological flexibility. So that's one of the reasons why I suggest to my clients um, to engage in a mindfulness practice. Some clinicians may suggest that mindfulness practice is an end in itself, and I suggest that introducing folks to mindfulness may become a means 
to clinically useful ends, as described by these RFT principles. And I welcome any feedback about this. As I mentioned earlier, I was going to talk uh, in this podcast also about, arguably, the first acceptance and commitment therapy song. I was in a uh, metal band back in the 90s, and we were called Sonopath. And I was a singer. Uh, I was one of the songwriters. I was a lyricist and uh, the principal manager of the band. I got to tell you, I love that band. It was everything to me during my graduate school years, much to the chagrin of my mother and my professors. I would have dropped out of my doctoral program if the band just took like one or two more steps further in the music business. We were pretty successful. We were a regionally successful band in the New York City area. We toured the East Coast of the United States. We played Toronto. We played all the way down to Memphis, Tennessee, and all the major ports in between. Uh, we had two CDs that were promoted on MTV, reviewed by Newsday, Kerrang! Magazine, The Howard Stern Show. Uh, most of the local radio was playing our, our music during some of those summers that we were together. We opened up for national acts, big concerts, and it was a really great time in my life. Um, and the reason and the relevance for all this is that back in 1994, I wrote a song called Act. The lyrics were based on my misunderstandings of Act, but it seemed appropriate to my mid-1990s graduate student eyes. There weren't a lot of resources to learn Act and check your facts back then. So I just pieced together an understanding and wrote the song based on my perceptions. Um, the lyrics at some points might be arguably act inconsistent, but, inconsistent, but, but maybe not, so I'll let you be the judge. Uh, an interesting story is the first time I really got a chance to meet uh, Steve was at uh, a Reno, or a, rather a Tahoe workshop in 1995. It was put on by, by him and, and Kelly. And I remember telling Steve, hey man, you know, I, I wrote this, uh, this song called Act. He's like, oh, tell me all about it, you know, tell me the lyrics. And uh, the funny thing is, you know, acts about psychological flexibility. Well, I wasn't very psychologically flexible. I got really nervous. I got anxious that I was talking to Steve Hayes about a song I wrote called Act. And uh, I blanked. I completely froze and uh, forgot the lyrics. I said something stupid like, oh, you know, uh, you know, without the music, uh, I don't have the context to remember the uh, the lyrics. I'll, I'll get back to you. He was pretty gracious about it, but it's kind of corny uh, that I totally forgot the lyrics to my own song. Before I play it, I just want to, another kind of quick story about it. Um, we're a metal band. I mean, you'll hear it in a second. Um, and sometimes we'd play this song, and uh, the song's being played by, like, guys with, you know, tattoos, nose rings, I mean, just, like, wild, long hair, uh, jumping around on stage. And, uh, you know, the song's about mindfulness, and it comes from this, you know, peaceful tradition. And I remember playing at a club right near CBGB's, and a big giant mosh pit broke out. And we're singing the song "Act," and there's combat boots flying, and people stage diving and slam dancing into each other. And I just remember thinking about the irony of the whole thing. So, if you don't mind, uh, I'm just gonna indulge myself uh, before the song plays and introduce it just one last time. And it went something like this. <laughs> This is the last song for the evening. It's about a controversial psychotherapy being developed in the Nevada desert. This song is called ACT.
Sonopath, song's called Act. This is Functionally Speaking. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments or concerns, please feel free to email me at daniel.moran at comcast.net. Thanks a lot.